Let's pray as we always do. We pray for good reason because we all need God's help to hear God's word well, to know him better, to be conformed into the image of Christ through the preaching and the reading of God's word. So let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we ask for your help. This uh, passage is difficult, difficult to understand, difficult uh, to absorb, and yet it reveals maybe not the things that are on our to-do list today, but the mysteries of the way you have dealt with the world and are dealing with the world. And it shows us that you are a God who keeps his promises. You are faithful. You are holy. And as we come to this passage, we, may we draw near to you, the faithful and true God, through Jesus Christ, we pray in his name. Amen. There are an estimated 18 million Jewish people in the world today. And they are God's chosen people. The descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They are the nation born out of God's promise. God himself made great covenant promises to Abram, their forefather, that God would make of Abram a great nation and that he would bless uh, Abram's descendants and that all of the nations of the earth would be blessed through them. God had promised that the Jewish people would be his very own people and he would be their God. And God also promised to send Israel a king, the Messiah, the anointed one. God promised that when the Messiah comes, he would deliver the Jews from their oppressors and bring in a universal kingdom that would last forever. And many of the Jewish people in the world today are still hoping in these salvation promises. They are still waiting for God to fulfill them. But God's promised salvation to Israel has already come. Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promised salvation for Israel. Jesus is the Messiah, God's promised Savior King that Israel has been waiting for. Do you remember in John chapter 4 when Jesus was talking with the Samaritan woman at the well? She says, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. And when he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus replies to her, I who speak to you am he. I am the long-awaited Messiah, Jesus says. I am the promised Savior King who will explain all these things and fulfill all, the, all of these things. I am the salvation that God has promised to the Jewish people. So Jesus Christ is the salvation that the Jews have been waiting for. And yet at the time when Paul is writing the book of Romans, many of the Jews had not believed in Jesus. 
And that's still the case today, isn't it? Some 2,000 years later. Some of the Jewish people have come to believe in Jesus, their Messiah, but so very many have not. In fact, uh, I was speaking with one Jewish man just this weekend, and he said that many Jewish people see Christianity as anti-Jewish. For some, Jesus is so antithetical to their Judaism that it is forbidden even to say the name of Jesus aloud. It's an insult. And yet how tragic that their promised Messiah, their way of salvation, cannot even be mentioned among them by name. Paul says in Romans chapter 1, the gospel message of Jesus Christ is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes to the Jew first and also for the Gentile. For the Jew first. So why is it that so many Jewish people have not believed in Jesus? What is going on? Why have so many of the Jewish people rejected Jesus, their promised Messiah? Has God rejected them? Is God done with his people? Is it over for them? This is the question that Paul has been dealing with in this section of Romans, uh, Romans 9 to 11. And now he tackles it full on in chapter 11, verse 1. Look, at, look with me at Paul's first question in verse 1. He says, I ask then, has God rejected his people? Is God done with the Jewish people? Has he abandoned them? And based on what we see around us, we might be tempted to say, yes, God has abandoned the Jewish people. He's done with them. He's moved on to the Gentiles. He's gathered a new people, the church. He's, he's done with the Jews. But that's not at all how Paul answers the question. Has God rejected his people, the Jews? That's the question. And Paul's answer is a resounding no. His trademark emphatic no in the book of Romans. By no means. May it never be. Absolutely not. No way. And really that's the whole message of chapter 11 in a nutshell. The whole sermon right there. So if you're wanting to leave early, now is, now is your chance. Has God rejected his people, the Jews? No way. Not at all. And then Paul goes on to explain why in verses 1 to 5. Let's start with the summary in verse 5. So too, Paul says, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. There's a remnant, which means there is a part, there is a subset of Israel that has put their faith in Jesus. There is a part, a subset of Israel who have been chosen, elected by God's grace 
unto saving faith in Jesus Christ. So God has not rejected his covenant people, Paul says, whom he foreknew. He has preserved a remnant who have believed in Jesus. And Paul reminds us of a similar situation uh, from the history of Israel in 1 Kings chapter 19. We see it in verse 3. In those days, the prophet Elijah says in verse 3, Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars. And I alone am left. And they seek my life. Elijah, the prophet, is lamenting the widespread unbelief and idolatry and hostility of the Jewish people in his own day. And he says to the Lord, Lord, I'm the only one left. I'm the only one who has remained faithful to you. And the Lord says, no. In verse 4 of our passage, the Lord says, I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. 7,000 men who have not abandoned the Lord to worship idols. So in Elijah's day, there was a substantial remnant who remained faithful to the Lord. But notice the remnant was the Lord's doing. Notice how the Lord says in verse 4, I have kept. I have kept for myself 7,000 men. It is God's own doing that the 7,000 had remained faithful to him. And so it is with us. If we would believe in Jesus, if we would remain faithful to him, yes, it is our decision. Yes, it is a choice that we have to make to be sure. But behind our genuine personal decision is God's doing. Uh, It says, to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. So if we hold fast to Jesus, it will be God's doing, his keeping of us. As the song that we sometimes sing says, he will hold me fast. And that's the only way that we or anyone else will persevere in faith. So, I don't know about you, but sometimes it seems like believers all around me are dropping like flies. When people are turning away from following Christ all over the place to run after the false gods of this world and We can all feel it in our own hearts. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, Lord, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. We're all prone to wander, and we can begin to despair, can't we? But God keeps his own. He kept some to be faithful to him. He preserved a faithful remnant in Elijah's day, and God is still preserving a faithful remnant today. 
And Paul says in verse 5 of the faithful remnant of Israel, so too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. God has chosen some by grace. So the criteria by which God decides who will be saved is his own grace, not our works or our merits. And he will also keep his saved people faithful to him all by his grace. And Paul, who's writing the book of Romans, is one of them. He is one of the faithful remnant kept by God's grace. God has made Paul one of the faithful remnant. And Paul's conversion is a textbook case of salvation by grace. Think of the conversion of Paul. Was he seeking Jesus? Was he looking for something else? Was he on a spiritual quest investigating the options? Did he make a personal decision as far as we know? Not at all. He wasn't seeking Christ at all. He was zealous for Judaism to the extent that he violently opposed Christianity. He was persecuting the church. But in the midst of his willful persecution of the church and in the midst of his willful rejection of Jesus Christ, God confronted him and transformed him and called him to faith in Jesus. Paul was added to the believing remnant of Israel all by God's electing grace. And Paul highlights the sheer grace of it all here. The remnant is chosen and preserved by God. Their salvation isn't deserved, it isn't earned. Their faithfulness to the Lord is not their own doing. Verse 6 reminds us, But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. If there's any earning at all, it's not a gift. It's by grace. It's a gift. There's no earning at all. There's no deserving it. God's saving of us and God's keeping of us is all a result of his grace. It's by his doing. So Paul's first answer to the question, has God rejected his people Israel, is no, he hasn't. He has preserved a faithful remnant. But what has become of the rest? Those who have not believed. The rest of them were hardened. Look at verse 7. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. What? This again? I thought we were done with that in chapter 9. God hardens some people in their unbelief. Paul says, yes, he gives a sort of scriptural montage, a collection of quotations 
from the Old Testament, a bit of Isaiah 29, a bit of Deuteronomy 29. Look at it in verse 8. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see, ears that would not hear, down to this very day. Notice those words. God gave them a spirit of stupor. God gave them eyes that would not see. This hardening of unbelieving Israel is God's doing. It's part of his greater plan, Paul says. And Paul also quotes from Psalm 69 in verse 9. And David says, Let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. Now in Psalm 69, David is calling for God's judgment to come on unbelieving Israel who have opposed him as God's anointed king. David is God's chosen king, God's anointed one, and the evil-doing Israelites have opposed him and he is calling for God's judgment upon them because he is the Christ figure, God's anointed one. And by quoting Psalm 69 here, Paul is pointing to the hardening of unbelieving Israel in his own day and emphasizing that it is actually God's judgment upon them for their unbelief, for opposing God's anointed one. God prevents them from seeing as a judgment against them for their unbelief. This is heavy stuff. We cannot read these verses casually. These things are life and death. So what is Paul saying to us here? That God has not rejected Israel. By his electing grace, he has saved a remnant for himself who have embraced Jesus Christ by faith and the rest God has hardened as a judgment against them. And notice, just as we saw God's sovereignty and salvation back, to, back in chapter 9, we see it again here in chapter 11. Paul has no qualms about saying that God is in control of salvation. God brings some people to himself all by grace and others he hardens in their unbelief. And although that is hard to hear, although we wrestle with that, although that doesn't fit with our default understanding of God, it is not unjust. After all, chapters 1 through 3 of Romans have laid out the case that no one is ever condemned unjustly. Absolutely everyone deserves only God's condemnation and judgment. I'm willing to admit that I'm on that list. 
What do I deserve from God? Only God's condemnation and judgment. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, Paul says. The wages of our sin is death. God's judgment is what we all deserve. And since we all deserve God's judgment, salvation through Jesus Christ is no one's birthright. It is all of God's grace, it is all of God's doing, and completely undeserved. What Paul is saying here is that the Lord has been faithful to his covenant people, Israel, by saving a remnant who have believed in Jesus Christ. But that leads Paul to ask a second big question, which he asks in verse 11. Look at the second big question. He says, So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? That is, did Israel stumble in order that they might fall? Fall is worse than stumble, you see. In other words, is this final? Is this widespread unbelief, this judgment, the end of God's plan for his people Israel? Yes, he has saved a believing remnant. Yes, he has been faithful to his salvation promises. But what about the rest of the Jewish people? Is this the end of the line? Is he done with unbelieving Israel? And again, the quick answer is right there in verse 11. By no means. No way. Absolutely not. This is absolutely not the end for unbelieving Israel. And the long answer is the rest of chapter 11. And we're only going to tackle part of that today and the rest next week. So what is God's plan for the Jewish people going forward? What is the rest of the story for unbelieving Israel? Paul begins to explain in verse 11. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Here's what God is doing. Paul explains the mystery to us. God has used the widespread Jewish rejection of Jesus Christ to bring the good news of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles. And one of God's purposes for saving the Gentiles is to make his own people, Israel, jealous. Jealousy is a powerful emotion. It's easier and more humorous to see jealousy at work in younger children. Perhaps you've been working in childcare and you know that toy that none of the kids has any interest in. Maybe it's been sitting there in the little cubby for three years, untouched. But as soon as one child begins to play with it, all of a sudden, everybody wants it. We become jealous when we see what someone else has, when we see what someone else is enjoying. 
Or there's the appropriate jealousy of romantic love. When you see your own spouse becoming a little too chummy with someone else, hypothetically speaking, of course. In such a situation, jealousy is rightly kindled. What are you doing? You're mine. What are you doing? And that is what God intends for his people, Israel. Though they did not have interest in his salvation, though they did not have interest in the Savior, Jesus Christ, he intends for the salvation of the nations, the salvation of the Gentiles in Jesus, Israel's own Messiah, to make unbelieving Israel wildly jealous for her own Savior. And Paul carries out his own gospel preaching ministry in in, in a way so as to have the same effect. He writes in verse 13. Now I'm speaking to you Gentiles, inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus to save some of them. So Paul is conspicuous about his ministry to the Gentiles, his gospel preaching ministry to the non-Jewish people. He's conspicuous about it in front of the Jews so that he might make his fellow Jews jealous for their own Savior and come to faith in Jesus Christ themselves. So it seems like what Paul is envisioning is a constant trickle of Jewish people coming to Jesus all along the way. A constant trickle of people coming to realize that Jesus is the Messiah and following him. And it seems like that's what we have going on in our world today, a slow and steady trickle. Much of Israel remains unbelieving to this very day, but some all along the way, are coming to faith in Jesus. But there are hints in this passage that God has a much greater salvation in mind than this constant trickle. We see several hints of this greater salvation to come. The first hint is in verse 12. Paul says, Now, if their trespass, if the trespass of the Jews means riches for the world, the Gentiles, and if their failure, the failure of the Jews, means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? It's a very cryptic phrase. Paul doesn't say when or how this full inclusion will come about. But this phrase, full inclusion, seems to anticipate more than a slow trickle at some point in the future. Right now, it's predominantly failure. But how much more will their full inclusion mean? And also, it seems that this language How much more will their full inclusion mean? This future-oriented language points to 
a day when there will be more than a slow trickle of Jewish people coming to faith in Jesus. We see the second hint of more to come in verse 15. Paul says, For if their rejection means reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If their rejection means reconciliation for the world, what will their acceptance mean? It's it's not really clear whether it means their rejection by God or their rejection of Jesus. Their acceptance by God or their acceptance of Jesus. It's not it's not totally clear. But they will go from rejection now to acceptance at some future time. So, is Paul speaking of a slow trickle? Or is he speaking of a greater phase of acceptance to come? It seems like something more is in view. And again, it's the future-oriented language. What will their full acceptance mean? And I need to uh, break into next week's passage and borrow from there for the third hint. The biggest hint of more to come is verse 25. Still speaking to the Gentiles, Paul writes, Gentiles, lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. The hint is that word until. It seems to suggest that there is a timetable. There are different phases in God's salvation program. It seems to suggest that there will be a time to come when the partial hardening of Israel will be lifted. That, and that when that partial hardening of Israel is lifted that it will bring about a much more widespread salvation of Jewish people. Again, these are only hints. Paul doesn't say when this would be. He doesn't say how this would take place. Uh, Various theologians have very sure ideas about the when and the how. My job is to tell you what I know the Bible says. And I think that The when and the how is a matter of opinion and interpretation. But it does seem like Paul anticipates a future time when the Jews might come to faith in greater numbers. A time when the slow trickle will turn into a mighty river. May it be so. So if you, if you know the when and the how, please tell me. I want to know. But I don't believe that God gives us more details with certainty. That's my present understanding. Perhaps that is why Paul refers to it in verse 25 as a mystery. But here's what we can say for sure from this passage. 
just because Israel has largely rejected Jesus Christ at present, that does not mean that God has rejected Israel. He has saved a remnant, and he is saving some even now, a slow trickle. And it seems that in the future, when the slow, there will be a time when the slow trickle will become a mighty river. Well, we're going to pick up the rest of this chapter next week. But let's just pause and think about what we've heard this morning. Let us appreciate the sovereignty and the majesty of our God. We have a faithful God. We have a gracious God. He is gracious and faithful to his promises. Yet at the same time, he's a God of truth and justice. And he hardens some. He is mighty to save and he is mighty to condemn. Paul says in verse 22, I'm borrowing again from next week's passage. He, puts both, he holds both of these two things in tension. He says, note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity towards those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you provided you continue in his kindness. God is both kind and severe. He is full of grace and mercy, and he's full of justice. And where we stand in relation to those two things depends entirely on what we do with the Savior, Jesus Christ. If we embrace the Savior by faith as the believing remnant has done, We go from severity to kindness. And if we look God's kindness and grace and mercy in Jesus in the face and we turn away from him, we go from kindness to severity. So I want to close with uh, this reading from Hebrews 3, which I think is the application of this passage for us this morning. In Hebrews 3.12 and following, it says, Take care, brothers. Watch out, brothers. Lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. We do not want to trifle with God. We want to embrace God's salvation in Jesus Christ and to not turn away from him, to not let go of him, 
to not wander off from him. 